I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2. And the guys have some Bibles here. They're going to make their way to the back. We want everybody to be able to look as we consider this passage in Philippians 2. So if you need a Bible, get their attention and they'll get one of those to you. And it's marked at Philippians chapter 2 for you. A professional football team has been described as 11 players on the field who desperately need rest, being watched by 50,000 people in the stands who desperately need exercise. Now, sometimes that's applied to the church, where the sad, stat, sad statistic that 20% of the people do 80% of the work is too often accurate. Now, I'm very glad to say that at our church, it's not only not accurate, it's not even close. But nevertheless, it's still true that too many Christians and too many of us, if we're honest, are not fully engaged in the work of the Lord and the advance of the gospel through his church. Now, the reasons for that are several. Some of us still believe in a hard clergy laity distinction, even if intellectually we know it's not true. That's the idea that ministry is the job of the professionals, the paid people, the clergy. For the person who thinks that way, there's a category of people called they. So that when you wonder who does something or how it gets done at the church, you just know that they do it. In your mind, then, there are people who are the sort of green berets of God's army who make sure that the mission gets accomplished. That's the reason for some that they're not fully engaged. But others have just never been accustomed to active involvement in the biblical mission. They have been brought up to see church just as something that you attend on Sunday, and then that's the extent of it. Others are not engaged to their full potential because their circumstances in life prevent that from happening right now. Perhaps working seven days a week or some kind of sickness with which you're dealing or some family situation that requires your attention. Now for you, please know that doing what you can in even that circumstance is serving to your full potential, even if it's not as much or in the way that you would like, at least at this time. So whatever the reason, in today's message, we're going to be challenged to consider our commitment to the Lord and the work of His church. Now, whenever we hear challenges like that, it's our tendency to think, Pastor wants me to give up my time and give up my energies for something in the church. But when you serve the Lord, you soon find that it's not what you give up, but what you gain. You're never losing. You're always winning when you serve Christ. One commentator has said this, Selfless service for Christ is a sacrifice only in the sense that it's an offering to God. It's never a sacrifice in the sense of being a loss. A believer can never sacrifice anything for the Lord that is not replaced with something infinitely more valuable and gratifying. It is always an exchange of the lesser for the greater. Now today as we continue our series in the book of Philippians, the theme of which is that we are together for the gospel. In our passage today, we're going to see examples from the lives of three men who were all in for the Lord and whose model calls each of us to live lives of service. So I invite you to read with me 
beginning in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at his word. Our Father, we are gathered before you as your people with your word open before us. We ask you, Lord, to help us, to grant us the quietness of of heart, the attentiveness of mind, to be able to focus upon your word and to leave here committed to bringing you glory with the gifts and abilities that you have provided for us Resolve to use those gifts and abilities for the purpose for which you have given them. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now we have an insert in your program that has an outline of the message. We have that for you each week. If you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take it out. And we say first of all there that Christians serve without regard to position. Christians serve without regard to position. The first of the three examples that we have in our passage is the writer of Philippians himself, the great Apostle Paul. As an apostle, Paul was one of a select group, originally so exclusive that they were known as simply the Twelve. In fact, you find that reference a number of times in the Gospels, where it says the Twelve did this or the Twelve did that, just referring to them that way. One example is in John chapter 6, Jesus said to the Twelve. And then after the betrayal and suicide of the false follower of Christ, Judas Iscariot, the apostles met together to choose a replacement. Here's what the Bible says. They chose Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So again, you've got the 12, you've got the 11. This is a a very select group known by their number. And Paul then, who wrote Philippians, said of himself, The risen Christ was seen of me. As one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles. So Paul was later counted among this select number, the apostles. But he says of himself that I was as one born out of due time. Why is that? Because he was not part of the original band. But rather it was later that Christ called him to be an apostle. But he finds himself in this group added to that extremely select company that's limited by their number, but also by their ability, the things that they were able to do, which were not 
common even in New Testament times, let alone in in our times. For example, in the very first church 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, the Bible says this, many wonders and signs were performed, note by who? The apostles. And then Paul, an apostle himself, says of himself with regard to his own credentials, he says this in 2 Corinthians 12, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles. So Paul finds himself among the select number and with this ability that the apostles have that not everyone has. They mark an apostle. Ephesians 2 says this, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. And yet with all of that, how did Paul see himself? When the spiritually immature Corinthian church was in the habit of exalting men and picking their favorite preachers, here's what Paul said to them. What is Paul? Only a servant through whom you came to believe. So you ought to regard us as servants of Christ. He's an apostle. He has this exalted position, but he sees himself simply as a servant of Christ. Serving, yes, in that position, but it's all about serving Christ. The second example of servanthood in our passage is his young understudy, Timothy. And Timothy has the distinction of having been led to the Lord by Paul himself. Paul alludes to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, I became your father through the gospel. That is, your father, Corinthians, because I'm the one who brought the gospel to you and the city of Corinth. That's recorded in Acts chapter 18. I became your father through the gospel. And then he says, and Timothy is my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. So he's speaking of spiritual conversion and Paul being the instrument of that, giving the gospel. He did that to the Corinthians. He did that apparently to Timothy as well. So one commentator said this about the relationship between Paul and Timothy. Paul spoke of Timothy in numerous places in the New Testament as my true child in the faith, my beloved son, my fellow worker, our brother. And then in this book, Philippians, in chapter 1 and verse 1, as a fellow servant, literally a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Timothy was with Paul in Corinth. And he was sent to Macedonia and he accompanied Paul on his return trip to Jerusalem. He was associated with Paul in the writing of, of Romans, of 2 Corinthians, of this book, Philippians, of Colossians, of both First and Second Thessalonians, and of Philemon. He served as Paul's troubleshooter in Corinth, in Thessalonica, and now here in Philippi. And by the time Paul wrote our book, Philippians, Timothy had been with him as his almost constant companion for about 10 years. Paul would later, after release from this imprisonment, in which he finds himself as he writes Philippians, he would leave Timothy in Ephesus to become the pastor of the church that was located in that great city. Now, Timothy's long history with Paul and his privileged status as his protege could have been a cause for pride for a lesser man. But Timothy had learned the lessons of his mentor well. And he was willing to do whatever was needed in the Lord's work for the sake of Christ and his people. Now you might be thinking, your point here is that position does not matter in serving Christ. But the two examples that you've given so far have actually important positions. Paul was an apostle. Timothy was a pastor. 
Even if they saw themselves as simply servants, which they did, they each had important positions. Well, okay, but we have a third example. And that third example in the passage is Epaphroditus. And he's another protege and co-worker of Paul's. And one commentator says of Epaphroditus, he was not an apostle. And he was not a spiritual statesman like Paul was. Or as far as we know, he was not even a pastor like Timothy became. There's no record of any outstanding work that Epaphroditus accomplished. Nothing is known of his family, his personal background, his conversion, how long he had been a believer, like we have regarding Paul and Timothy. Nor do we know his specific functions in the churches at Philippi and Rome or elsewhere. Epaphroditus exemplifies the spirit of sacrifice for the sake of Christ that involves no public acclaim, no prominence, no high office, no great talents or gifts. He was not a noted preacher, teacher, or leader. Epaphroditus was just a regular guy in the church, serving the Lord with all he had. And in so doing, he was fulfilling the image that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 of the body dynamic. That the church is indeed a body, but it's made up of many members, and all of those members, no matter who they are, no matter their position, are gifted to contribute to its work. So 1 Corinthians 12 says God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Christians serve without regard for position. I say secondly in your outline. Christians serve without regard for person. Without regard for position and without regard to person. All three of these men, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, made great sacrifice for the cause of Christ. Paul is, as I've mentioned, and as you've learned as we've been going through this series, Paul is in prison as he writes this letter to the Philippians. He's under the threat of a sentence of death. And yet, in the midst of that, Paul's thoughts are not about him and his predicament, but about his brothers and sisters in Philippi. He put pen to papyrus, in order to encourage and instruct them, even though he's the one in the dire circumstances. In fact, we saw last week that he said of himself, if you'll look in verse 17, he said, I am being poured out like a drink offering. Now, a drink offering was poured out on the actual sacrifice that was on the altar, and it would cause smoke to rise toward heaven. But notice, Paul considers what he's going through As the lesser offering. Because according to verse 17, he's being poured out on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. It's your faith and what you're doing, Philippians, that are the sacrifice. And I'm simply the drink offering. He's speaking as if their faithfulness is greater than his own. Reflecting the genuine humility that Paul possessed. Now, ultimately, Paul would be martyred. And in the last words we have recorded in the New Testament before his death, he says this. Famously, I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. Christians serve without regard for their own person. That is, they're willing to even suffer for the sake of the Lord and his cause. That was certainly true of Paul. Timothy is a kindred spirit with Paul. Verse 20 of chapter 2 says this. Paul says of Timothy, I have no one else like him. 
Now, the Greek word, you know, your New Testament was written in Greek. That's translated that translates into the words like him. It's composed of two Greek words that mean literally equal souled. Paul is saying of Timothy, we are like twin souls. So like Paul, he gives himself for the benefit of others. And at the end of verse 22, he says, as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. John MacArthur says of the sacrificial service that Timothy rendered for others, that from the time Paul chose Timothy to serve alongside him, Timothy surrendered any personal plans he may have had for his life. He began a nonstop adventure and would bring him that would bring him great fruitfulness and spiritual satisfaction, but it would also involve suffering and sacrifice. Like Paul, Timothy considered himself under obligation to preach Christ to everyone because he knew that, as Paul wrote in Romans, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew and also to the Gentile. Timothy, too, like Paul sought to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Timothy was willing to be, like Paul, made a spectacle to the whole universe, to the angels as well as to human beings, and to be considered as a fool for Christ. And also to be hungry, thirsty, in rags, brutally treated, and homeless. Timothy could say sincerely with Paul, that we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves for your, as your servants for Jesus' sake. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. Like Paul, Timothy was eventually imprisoned for his faith. Did you know that? The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. And if he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. So for the sake of his Lord, Timothy left his home and his godly mother and his grandmother. There's no evidence that Timothy ever married. He could truthfully declare, as Paul did, to the Ephesians as he left that city after three years with them in Acts chapter 20, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Christians serve without regard to their own person. And that was true of Paul and Pastor Timothy, but it's also true of church member Epaphroditus. We're told in verse 26, That he was distressed because you heard he was ill. He was distressed, Epaphroditus, because he heard, because you heard that he was ill. Now notice he's not distressed because he was ill. He's distressed because you heard he was ill. He's concerned about their concern for him. Even though verse 27 says this illness was so severe that he almost died. All that was said of Paul the Apostle and of Timothy the elder pastor could also be said of this regular guy in the church, Epaphroditus. In his farewell speech to the nation on January 17, 1961, two-term president Dwight Eisenhower one of only four five-star generals of the army, 
and the former Supreme Allied Commander in World War II, issued this warning to the nation. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Now that speech is famous because President Eisenhower coined the phrase military-industrial complex, cautioning us regarding the potential dangers when defense becomes a permanent industry. Now I have a book on my shelf whose title is this, The Importance of Being Famous, subtitle, Behind the Scenes of the Celebrity Industrial Complex. Just as Eisenhower had warned about the dangers of an industry devoted to making weapons, the author of that book warns of the dangers of an industry that makes celebrities. And according to the book, it's about, quote, people who live their lives seeking extreme recognition at the very highest levels. Theirs is a sometimes surreal existence now ruled by ever-expanding media on a 24-hour news cycle. The intense state of constant coverage combined with our culture's obsession with fame have given rise to what I call the celebrity industrial complex. In this wired world, it is wise to question the reality of what we see. So we have shows designed to make celebrities and stars and idols. The producers have a vested interest in creating and promoting celebrities because they sell to a public that is obsessed with fame. And it's fame that's based almost entirely on external criteria. On beauty, on wealth, on ability, whether it's athletic or musical or theatrical. We should extol competence and accomplishment. But hear this, friends, but not without regard for character. What we need are fewer celebrities and more real heroes. Real, live, everyday heroes. Now, that's what the world's doing. And we shouldn't be surprised at what worldlings do. That's what the world is doing. But have you ever noticed how the church emulates this obsession with celebrity? We've got preacher celebrities. Think of your favorite preacher that you send money to, really. We've got celebrity preachers. We've got celebrity musicians in the church. Celebrity preachers have book signings, sometimes to spiritualize it, Bible signings. Can you imagine Paul doing that? Can you imagine trying something like that on Paul? Hey, Paul, you're my man. Will you sign my scroll? (laughs) You see it in the church when you see people try to emulate their celebrity preacher or singer. It's one of the saddest things you'll ever see. Is somebody trying to preach or somebody trying to sing like their favorite celebrity preacher or singer. The Apostle Peter went to visit a man, a man named Cornelius in the Bible, says that Cornelius fell at Peter's feet in reverence. 
But Peter made him get up. He said, stand up. I am only a man myself. What we need are far fewer celebrities and more heroes. And those heroes don't need to be of the preacher-pastor variety. We need real, live, everyday spiritual heroes who serve the Lord without regard to position or person. Christians do both of those. They serve without regard for position, without regard for person. And then I say in your outline that Christians serve with godly character. You see, that's the difference between a real hero and a celebrity. It's character. Christians serve with godly character. Celebrities have notoriety, they have fame, they have publicity, but heroes have character. And that character falls into two categories. First, they are trustworthy. Verse 20 of Timothy, Paul says, I have no one like him who will show a genuine concern for your welfare. Here's a man with proper concerns, for his concern was genuine. What a breath of fresh air, someone with actual genuine interests and concerns. How often do we say things like, I'll pray about that, then we walk away and forget about it? How often do we go days or weeks without thinking about personal ministry? How often do we go days or weeks without thinking about congregational ministry? The ministry of the church as a whole and what the church is doing. What a breath of fresh air to read about Timothy, who's a man of genuine concern. And this concern, Timothy's interest, was focused not on himself, but on the congregation. He's the kind of man, the passage says in verse 20, who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for your well-being. He was concerned about the congregation that was beginning to show signs of problems in Philippi, part of the reason that Paul's writing to them. It's a congregation that had been left to its own probably for too long because Paul was unable to get back and minister. He had been locked up in Rome for two years and prior to that for two years in Palestine. And so Timothy shared in Paul's concern for the church. Let me ask you, friends, if you have children, And even if you don't have children of your own, biologically, if you're part of this church, hear this, you've got children. (laughs) Because we're a family, and our kids look to you. So you've got either kids of your own, or you've got kids in this church family. If you have children, what do you want your children to remember about you? Now that question could be answered in a number of ways. Many would say, I want my children to remember that I love them. That's a good answer. How many of us would say this? I want my children to remember that I loved Christ's church. I want my children to remember that I love to serve the people of God. I want them to remember that I got excited about the privilege of being able to hear God's word with his church and to serve his church in every way that I can. We need to model a love for God's church to our children. The trustworthy character of Jesus' servants, of Christians, is seen in their genuine concern for others and in their self, in their Christ-centered selflessness. Verse 21. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now here, Timothy's character is contrasted with that of others. He says, everyone looks out for his own interests. Now that's not referring, of course, to every person in the world. Rather, it's referring to those who were at Paul's disposal while he was in Rome. They're just too busy with other things. 
All of them had as their primary concern their own interests. What a sad commentary. Here's the great apostle. He's under house arrest for ministering the gospel. He's still ministering the gospel to the palace guard, as we saw in chapter 1. He's still ministering as he writes this letter to the Philippians. But he's surrounded by Christians who have more important things to do. That's what he's saying. I have no one else like Timothy. It's a sad commentary. The names are omitted to protect the guilty there. But one such person is named later in Scripture. At the end of this imprisonment, Paul is released for a year or two. And then he's again arrested for preaching the gospel, taken back to Rome. And once again, he's in that circle of believers. And one of the men who was helping him there during that time period was a man named Demas. And in the last book that Paul wrote, he mentions Demas. And what a way to have your name remembered throughout history. This is what Paul said about him in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Do your best, Timothy, to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. His circumstances while writing the book of Philippians were such that he says, No one here has nobler ambitions than their own self-interest. Timothy stood out as a rare gem in a world of self-seekers. Timothy was concerned for the things of Christ. If we're interested in the things of Christ, we'll be interested in the things of God's people. And so Timothy was willing to set self-interest and selfish ambition aside and pursue, pursue wholeheartedly the things of Christ and the things pertaining to God's people. Christians serve because they have godly character. We're trustworthy, as shown by our concern for others and our selflessness, which creates in us our servants' hearts. Verse 22. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Now, service is all too often a foreign concept for many in our individualistic American society. Servitude was, though, a concept that the Apostle Paul loved and he embraced it. More than any other title that he applied to himself, he used the title, the Greek word doulos, a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in verse 22, we have the verb form of that noun, doulos, served. Timothy was Paul's fellow bond slave in the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do you know what it means when it says, I'm a doulos, I'm a servant of Christ? That we're called to be, all of us? It means your life is not your own. It means that you live under the direction of your master. It means that all you do is subservient to his will and to his wishes. And here are two men in Paul and Timothy whose lives did not resist the authority of their master. They did not kick against the idea of service. They wholeheartedly embraced it. Timothy was a man with a servant's heart. And the passage tells us that he was a proven servant. Verse 22, you know that Timothy has proved himself. He's demonstrated his character. He's demonstrated his servant's heart. Now, how so? Well, Timothy had come into contact with the Philippians at least four times. He was there when the church was planted. They had seen his firsthand what kind of a man he was. They saw that he stood with Paul. They saw that he served diligently. They saw that he even experienced the crucible of affliction and he came through tested and approved as a man of God. 
Now that's important, that proving idea. Many people enjoy the limelight. Sometimes people will come into the church and they'll say, hey, I see that you have an emphasis on serving. I picked out something I want to serve in. and It's some kind of prominent position. Well, well, slow, slow down. Right? Many long for prestige in ministry. And so they try to climb the ladder, so to speak. And many churches foolishly thrust people into prominence prematurely. The result's disastrous. I've seen it. I've seen it up close and personal. Thankfully, not here. But in previous ministry. God's word teaches the principle that the greater the responsibility, the greater the accountability. And that's why we have passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3 that tell us that no one is to be placed in a position of leadership in the church if they're a novice. They're to be one who's had the opportunity to display their character. And Timothy was such a man. Christians serve with godly character. They're trustworthy. And I say in your outline, they are dependable. Dependable. And we see that in Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is mentioned only twice in the Bible, in this passage and then again in chapter 4. Yet in these brief verses, he's immortalized as virtually a synonym for faithful dependability. Notice in verse 25 that Paul describes his service to him personally. And we see an ascending scale of descriptive terms that Paul uses to describe this man of God. Verse 25, he was first a brother, then a co-worker, and finally a fellow soldier. Now, in the church where I grew up, everybody was called brother or sister. In fact, so much so that you, know, you never had anybody's first name. It was the last name, Brother Smith, Brother Brown, Brother Jones, Sister Smith. It was, it was always that way. Now, we may not use that title today, but we should never forget that we who know Christ are indeed truly brothers and sisters. We've been born into the family of God, and we ought to act as though we are brothers and sisters. Paul could have just used this term in its most basic sense to communicate the fact that indeed Epaphroditus is a believer, but I think he has more in mind here. It goes without saying that Epaphroditus was a believer and that he was Paul's spiritual brother, but I think Paul stresses This fact, in order to say that Epaphroditus was a brother indeed. Epaphroditus was truly a brother. He was a brother in depth of feeling and intimacy of spirit. He behaved as a brother ought to behave. You and I need to behave as brothers and sisters ought to behave, displaying to one another the love of Christ. Paul described Epaphroditus not only as a brother, but also as a co-worker in verse 25. The Greek word that's translated co-worker describes one who stands by your side and exerts his energy to help accomplish a common goal. It's a term that's laden with sweat and toil. When Paul used that word of Epaphroditus, he immortalized this man in the company of many noble kingdom laborers to whom he applied that term. Here's a list, just a partial list of other people that Paul called co-laborers or co-workers. He applied it to Apollos to Aquila and Priscilla, to Aristarchus, to Clement, to Mark, to Timothy, to Titus, and to many others. And he uses it of this regular guy, church member, Epaphroditus. Back when Kim and I were serving in our parent church, Huron Baptist, in the early 90s, we had a man come to the church from Ohio to live in Michigan for just a couple of years. He was a professor at Cedarville Uh, Christian College in Ohio, 
He was on sabbatical to take some classes at Wayne State. He told Pastor Thomas when he came, Pastor, I'm only going to be here for a short time, so I want to roll up my sleeves while I'm here. And Mark Klimek, in the two years he was with us, ended up launching the church's music ministry and Awana program in that short time. Now that epitomizes what Paul's talking about here, a co-worker, one who stands by your side and exerts his energy to accomplish a common goal. And Epaphroditus is not only a co-worker, but he's a fellow soldier. Paul often made use of military terminology as he described the work of ministry. Epaphroditus was Paul's companion in arms. He was faithful in work and he was faithful in battle. A worker for Christ Jesus must also be a warrior for Christ Jesus. And in Paul's day, the foes, the enemies of the gospel were many. He had to stand face to face and square off to do battle with many threats. Judaistic legalism threatened to destroy the gospel by replacing grace with works. The sophistication of Greek philosophy and Greek culture threatened to destroy the gospel by blending it with the value system of the world. Emperor worship and polytheism, the belief in many gods, threatened to bludgeon the gospel out of existence through persecution simply because of the exclusive nature of the message of Christ Jesus. There are all kinds of these threats. But understand that these things haven't changed. We're still in battle, friends. We still find ourselves threatened by those who would pervert the gospel. We find ourselves threatened by those who would blend the gospel with the values of this age. We find ourselves threatened by those who stand in direct opposition to a gospel that says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You say, really, who says that? Well, how about that great theologian, Oprah? Really, find something better to watch, people. She said one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe that there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. There couldn't possibly be only one way. Look, you can have Oprah or you can have Jesus, but not both, okay? We need to be prepared to engage in battle. We're still soldiers for the Lord Jesus. And the need of the hour is for men and women who will be good soldiers of the cross, comrades in arm, who will fight along with one another, not against one another. Do you know what the key to being a good soldier is? Think about that. What is the key to being a good soldier? We could talk about the armor that's listed in Ephesians chapter 6 and how we are to be prepared for battle, but I don't think that's the key. We could talk about the sword of the Spirit that's part of that equipment given in Ephesians 6. That is the Word of God, and that's certainly a great emphasis in our church and should be in any Bible-believing church, but I don't even believe the Word of God is actually the key because before any of that becomes of any value to the soldier, There has to be a heart attitude developed. That's the key. A heart attitude that sees yourself as you truly are in relation to God and submit yourself to his mission. The Marines have a motto which says, Semper Fi, always faithful. Paul spoke of being always faithful. Listen to what he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. 
So, friends, we can roll up our sleeves and we can get to work. We can wage war against this culture, but none of it will accomplish anything of lasting significance unless we're motivated by a heart desire to always do what pleases our commanding officer, our Lord Jesus. That's the heart of being a good soldier of Christ. So to Paul, Epaphroditus was a brother, he was a co-worker, he was a fellow soldier. And in verse 26, we find more revealed about his character in relation to the Philippian church. To the Philippians, see, all, he was all of that to Paul, but to the Philippian church, he was something else. Verse 26, he was a minister. He is also your messenger whom you sent to care for my needs. The particular word found in the Greek for ministering to the needs of Paul is the word from which we get our English word liturgy. The idea was that of sacred service. Too often we think of sacred service as something revolving around the pulpit. Sacred service for Epaphroditus was delivering an offering from the church at Philippi to the Apostle Paul. Sacred service for Epaphroditus was representing the church to be Paul's companion and an encouragement to him. No doubt he served even in the simple capacity of running errands for Paul since Paul was under house arrest at the time. And all of it was his liturgy, his sacred service to God that was acceptable and well-pleasing to him. So what about for us? What about for you? Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus. Where do you fit into that? We need to remember that serving the Lord in his church, friends, hear this, is a full participation sport. Nobody on the bench. Nobody on the bench. There is no bench in God's game. Everybody's on the field. And each is to play their part and participate to the best of his or her ability. That means there's a next step for many of us here. What's the next step for you? Maybe it's baptism. Maybe you're a believer in Jesus, but you haven't taken the step of following him in obedience and baptism. If you need to be baptized, then we have a one-page application that you fill out and you turn in at the information center. Do that today. Maybe you've been here a long time and you've never taken the step of committing yourself to membership so that you can serve alongside your brothers and sisters to carry the Lord's work out at CBC. Membership may be the next step for some of you. There's a one-page application at the Information Center. Fill it out and turn it in today. Don't leave this morning. We're going to finish in just a moment. We'll have our refreshment time, and then we'll have the members class in here, and we'll have the newcomers class that I'll be leading in adult classroom one. If you haven't joined the church, stay for that second hour and I will see you in adult classroom one as we go through material that will help you as you become a member of our church. Are you using your gifts and abilities in a an area or areas of service? Now, Larry's doing the member class in here next hour. And as part of that class, we have today and two more weeks of that four week class, he's going to discuss how you can do that. But if you are serving, ask yourself this, am I serving by using my gifts and abilities to their full potential? Because you see, this is what some people do. Pastor gets on this kick every now and then. So to get him off my back, I'm going to find something to do. 
But see, just finding something to do doesn't mean you're doing what God has equipped you to do. That you're being fully utilized for a service. So how do you do that? Turn in the connection card, that right panel of your program. Turn it in today at the information center and say, I want to know more about how to get involved. I want to know more about how to get more involved. These are the kind of people we should be. And these are the kinds of examples that we should be to our children in the next generation. Verse 29 says this. Honor people like him. Honor people like Epaphroditus. They're the heroes. So your take-home truth is this. All Christians should give their all out of all they are. Did you guys get that all thing? Let's ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servants whose lives are recorded in it. We thank you for the great apostle, for his protege, Pastor Timothy. We thank you for men like Epaphroditus and so many who are named in the New Testament, whose lives we know very little about, but they simply assisted in every way that they could to see your glory spread through your church as they advanced your mission. Lord, you've given us the the glorious, privileged opportunity to do that here. Every person seated here has that opportunity if they know Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I ask you to grip the hearts of your people. Help us to be people like Paul, like Timothy, like Epaphroditus, who out of servants' hearts are willing, and not only willing, but, but see it as a great honor to serve you. We're not giving anything up. We're gaining everything living lives of joy, living lives of meaning, so that every day when we awake, we know that right now counts forever. Lord, I pray that we will be a church full of such people, not only now but into the future. May the next generation see that in us. and May the light of the gospel go forward from this place in the years to come. May you grant your people joy in the journey as we serve you shoulder to shoulder together. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.